whether we're talking about free choice or anything else in the world, there's something other than God. I mean, that's marvelous. Like God mm-hmm. made something else. Yeah. And that's what glorifies him. The existence of the other thing glorifies him. So when it comes to us and our activities, God wants us to be active and involved. And, and when we exercise our freedom, that when we exercise it well, especially, that is glorifying and reflecting our creator. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and today's episode is deep. This is definitely the most theologically technical and dense interview that I've done thus far, but it is so, so good. I talked to Dr. Robert Matava, who is a professor I had numerous times in grad school. He's so smart. He's so knowledgeable, but he's also really humble about what he knows and what he doesn't know and what the limits of knowledge even are in the first place. Um, And he's also very clear in the way he articulates things. So even if you're not a theology nerd or even if you don't have a background in theology and philosophy, I think you can still follow along um, in this interview and and get something out of it. Uh, We discuss one of the most compelling and challenging philosophical, theological questions that there is. I think this is a question that even confounds people who aren't religious, which is the question of free will. But then in the you know religious worldview, it is further complicated because we have to account for not only human free will, but also that in relation to God's sovereign will. Uh, so we get into all of that. We also discuss the role of grace. We get into the nature of suffering. We talk about vocation and discernment, and it's just a really rich episode, probably one that you'll need to listen to a few times, uh, but I think you will enjoy it. If you're new here, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at the Crab and the Cross podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Crab and the Cross, and I have a YouTube channel, um, youtube.com slash at the Crab and the Cross. Right now, the episodes are just on there as audio version. I am going to be coming out with some video episodes soon, and I currently have one uh, personal YouTube short, and I'm also working on another. So subscribe there, and you will be able to see when it comes out. Um, Rate, review, subscribe in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with Dr. Robert J. Matava. Dr. Robert J. Matava obtained his doctorate in theology from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland in 2010. He's the author of Divine Causality and Human Free Choice, Domingo Banez, Physical Pre-Motion, and the Controversy de Auxiliis Revisited. He currently serves as the Dean of Christendom Graduate School of Theology in Front Royal, Virginia. He's also a husband and father of seven children. Dr. Matava, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Mary Rose. It's a pleasure to be with you today. All right, so this is probably going to be one of the most theologically heavy episodes that I've done so far. Um, I mean, this is going to blend philosophy, theology, but also there's a real practical element to how these questions of grace and free will affect our our day-to-day life. Um, so 
We'll jump in a little bit with the debate, um, the controversy, and then we'll, we'll sort of move towards some of the practical implications. Um, so just to start off, can you give us a little bit of context surrounding the De Auxilius debate? Like, when did it arise? Why did it come about? Um, I know at some point the Pope just sort of said, stop it. Yeah, famously. <laughs> you know, go to your room and we're not talking about this anymore. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Like a good father. Right. right. <laughs> Well, um, absolutely, and this is, a, this is a test for me because every true story has a simple version. So this is, you know, notoriously one of the most thorny and complicated, speculatively complicated theological issues. So I'm going to do my best to kind of give you the, the, uh, the, the, the simpler version, the true, still true, but simple version, and hopefully by the end we will see it's of great practical importance, I think. So the controversy de auxilis is something that I think a lot of people um, maybe have never heard of, but the question that it concerned is something that almost every serious believer wrestles with at some point in their lives, and it's been um, a very contentious point between Catholics and Protestants, not only within the Catholic faith. Um, interestingly, too, within Protestantism, you see similar debates within each of the major confessions that mirror almost exactly the two sides in the controversy de auxilis. So that's just to kind of make an initial plug that resolution of this question is really important, not only interconfessionally, not only within the Catholic Church, but within any of the major Christian confessions. Um, so it concerns the relationship between human agency and God's providence, God's universal causality, his governance of the created order. Um, the specific dates, if you try to limit out exactly what, when the controversy de auxilies happened, were uh, from 1582 to 1607. So okay, begin, so this is post-Reformation. Yeah, it's post-Reformation, but very closely on the heels of the Reformation. So 1517 is Luther, right? The Reformation gets started. Council of Trent, 1540s to 1560s. And so we're immediately in the wake of the Council of Trent. And, and Trent, of course, taught a lot on grace and on justification, affirmed free will and its teaching on justification. But there were certain questions that Tr- Trent left unanswered. And that, in the wake of Trent, became a point of debate between uh, the mainly between the Dominicans and the Jesuits within the Catholic world. And uh, so that's how it all got going. In 1582, there was a a famous debate at Salamanca in Spain, at the University of Salamanca, between between a a Dominican thinker, Domingo Bañez, and the Jesuit Prudencio de Montemayor um, about the free will of Christ Hmm. and whether whether Jesus had free will, and if he did or if he didn't, if he was predetermined, whether he could merit our salvation by laying down his life on the cross— so it's really interesting to see that the whole debate starts with a Christological yeah, question. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, was that side of the debate kind of settled? Um, no, that's what touched it all okay. off. That, that, that never got, you know, you could ask either side, you know, was this resolved? And they probably both sides would say yes. But but um, really, the debate just got started. And, uh, and it went through many phases. Um, it spread outside of Spain to the Low Countries and Belgium and, and the Netherlands and into... Italy, and ultimately the Pope had to call a special commission to study the question, and this went on for years. They met scores of times. Um, several popes died in the process, including wow. one of the shortest reigning popes in the history of the church who, on election, promised he would settle this question and bring it to resolution, <laughs> and tw- 27 days later, he actually died, uh, as St. Robert Bellman predicted would, would happen, something like that would really? happen. Really? <laughs> and then, um, finally, in 1607, um, the pope declared an end to the controversy and essentially, like you said, said, go to your rooms. <laughs> uh, so he prohibited publication on the topic without any further um, express approval of the Holy See, and there was sort of an anticipated decision by the Holy See to settle the matter, um, but that never happened. So that was 1607, and here we are more than 400 years later, 
and there hasn't been any official resolution. And meanwhile, a lot has happened in the meantime. There's more right. we could say about that. But um, I would say one one final thing that, that's important to appreciate about when this happened was that it's bookended by two closely related controversies, one of which is probably obscure, the other of which maybe some listeners have heard of. Um, on the early end of the Auxilies was a debate over Bionism. Michael Dubai was a theologian at Louvain, and he got into trouble for some of his ideas that in some ways were kind of Pelagian and in some ways were kind of like the, the teachings of the Protestant reformers. And then on the other side, on the late end of the Auxilies, there was the Jansenist controversy. Mm -hmm. Probably Jansenism's a little bit more yeah, familiar. Yeah. Um, but but de Auxilies was very central to both of those two closely related debates. So if you look at it that way, this argument over grace and free will really spans a very long time. And of course, it's closely related to the Reformation itself. Luther's most famous work, his greatest work in many people's estimation, is titled on the bondage of the will. Mm. So central to his teaching on grace and justification is this, is this idea about free will or our lack of free will after the fall. And so you have to see De Auxilies within that wider context. Okay. So simplification of this, but you know, what's the sort of classic Dominican position versus the classic Jesuit position on this? Yeah, okay. And, and these are generalizations, of course. Right. But, but, uh, <laughs> so the classic, classic Dominican position is physical pre-motion. Um, and the idea starts from, this is the way I'd like to characterize it. I would say that, you know, in simple terms, you've got uh, a question about the reconciliation of human agency, human freedom, and divine agency, divine, divine sovereignty. And the Dominicans tend to prioritize divine sovereignty. The Jesuits prioritize human freedom. Of course, that's a broad strokes oversimplification. Right. Both sides affirm both in different ways. But that's broadly how to think about it. Another thing that's kind of interesting is that the Dominicans, I think, and the Jesuits approach this in two different ways of thinking. It's not just that they have two different views. It's that they conceptualize the whole matter in two very different ways. So the, the, Dominicans, um, the Dominicans start from this idea that God is the, the, the first cause, right, the universal cause, and nothing escapes his governance, nothing right. escapes his causal purview. And so there's no real problem for them out of the gate about reconciling human freedom with God's universal causality, because for them there's, there is no problem. There's no question that God's universal causality encompasses everything, including our freedom. The Jesuits start from human freedom, and for them their mindset is that there are two things here that need to be put together, right? There's human freedom, then there's God's causality. They affirm both, but it's kind of in a way broadly analogous to the Christological controversies. If, I don't know if that's maybe a little bit more familiar to some hearers, but You've got the debates surrounding the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon. You've got the Nestorians and you've got the Monophysites. And I think there's a broad analogy here because for the Nestorians, when it comes to a very different question, the Incarnation, mm -hmm. they say, well, we start with two natures. Jesus was really human and he's really God. And we know that there's two distinct intact natures. How do we put them together? And for their opponents, um, there was no issue about how to put two things together. They were just one. But the, the trouble was maybe they're so one, you can't give a good story about how they're distinct anymore. And that's the opposite era, the Monophysite era. So in an analogous way, I think with the Dominicans and Jesuits, when it comes to God and human freedom, one side, the Jesuit side, starts with this idea that there's two distinct realities here, right? Human free will, and we'll start there with from the bottom, and then there's God's sovereignty. How do we put them together? We try to come up with a very complex story about how to reconcile them. And the Dominicans say, there's nothing to be reconciled. I mean, they're both both there. They're, they're part of one harmonious whole. And so to kind of get down to, to brass tacks, the Dominican view uh, starts from the affirmation of God's uh, causal priority. And they say that God uh, causes human free choices, and he does so by moving the will to act, right? Moving the will from potency to act. 
And then when you try to push them on the details, well, how exactly does that happen? The answer is cashed out in terms of this theory of physical pre-motion, whereby God, the first mover, um, by a causal impulse or influx into the will, moves the will, and they'll qualify it suavely and sweetly and in accordance with its nature from within um, to choose exactly what God wants the will to choose. So they'll even use the language of physical predetermination. Why, why do they use the word physical if we're talking about the yeah. will? Yeah, yeah, great question. So this is, this is a, we, we have to be careful about anachronism here because they don't mean physical in the sense of modern physics. Okay. Um, what they mean is efficient causality. So if we think of the four causes, if that's at all familiar, like formal, final, material, and efficient, um, physical is meant to denote efficient causality, right? Um, so that in the order of nature, and that's where fit the Greek word physis means nature, in the order of nature, God is the first cause. And so anything that happens, any, any positive reality there is, has to ultimately be traced back to the first cause, who is the you know, efficient cause of whatever else there is besides God. So um, that's the idea. We have to be careful about importing modern notions of, of right, physical causality back on there, though there maybe are some interesting connections that might be drawn. That's, they weren't thinking in terms of what we mean necessarily by physics. They just meant efficient causality okay. as opposed to this. Here's the important distinction. There were others at the time that were saying no physical pre-motion, moral pre-motion. And the Dominicans and the Jesuits, too, affirmed that there was such a thing as moral pre-motion, but the Dominicans were at pains to say that in addition to that, there also has to be efficient causation. Moral pre-motion is God drawing the will, hmm. right, as, as an end. So final okay. causality. It's final causality where he's, he's, he's drawing the will as the good, right, through, through the object presented to the will. And some would say that, well, that's, that's an alternative, how to preserve freedom. God doesn't push the will. He pulls it, right, by his attractive mm -hmm. goodness. Yeah. And the Dominicans were saying, well, that may happen. It does happen. But in addition, we have to we can't leave efficient causality out of the picture. So for them, it's physical pre-motion. That's the Dominican side. Um, the Jesuit side is, you have to say a little bit more, I think, to give you the simple version, but you can reduce it to three basic principles. Um, the, the Jesuits start with human freedom, uh, whereas the Dominicans start with God's universal causality. And they say they have a particular definition of freedom, a free choice here. Now, there's different kinds of freedom, but free choice. Uh, they say free choice is the ability to do one thing or the other, to act or to not act, with all the prerequisites for acting supplied. Um, and so starting with an affirmation of that kind of freedom, they say uh, there's two other things we have to say. One is that God still causes whatever happens insofar as it's good. So we have a doctrine of general concurrence. Uh, where God concurs causally as an efficient cause in bringing about our choices, but not in a way that predetermines them, as the Dominicans would say. So it's kind of like God brings about our making of the choice, but in a way that leaves the determination of the choice up to us. So this, there's this concurrence, and even that language of concurrence mm -hmm. is revealing, right? Because it's like concurrence is like running along with. It's like two parallel streams of causality instead of this direct sequence of first to second cause. So you've got one, human freedom, two, general concurrence. And then the way that they hold this all together is with the third principle, which is middle knowledge. And what the Jesuits are at pains to do is to still preserve a traditional account of divine providence, given this really strong affirmation of free choice and general concurrence. And so they say, if, if the determination of choices is up to you, is God passive? Does he just sit by and let whatever happens, like along the lines of some contemporary schools of thought, like open theism? And, uh, and they say, no, uh, we preserve a traditional account of providence and God's sovereignty by saying this. Prior to creation, God knows, hypothetically, 
what any possible creature would do in any one of an infinite set of possible circumstances in which it could be placed. So God still has control over everything that happens in the actual world because in bringing about that world, he knew all the other possibilities, right? He could create Mary Rose, mm-hmm. and he could create her in different circumstances where she would do something different. But she could create her he, if he creates Mary Rose in this set of circumstances. He's, he knows beforehand which of the two options you're going to choose, even though he doesn't determine your will. Right. He knows which of the two you're going to do, and then he brings about this world in light of that. And if he wanted a different outcome, maybe he'd choose a world without Mary Rose, or maybe he'd have a world with Mary Rose in different preconditions where Mary Rose chooses differently. So there are these hypothetical outcomes that God knows prior to creating, and this he knows allegedly by his so-called scientia media, or middle knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most controversial, or definitely one of the two most controversial aspects of their theory, and it's um, obviously highly speculative, uh, but that's how they hold it all together. Middle knowledge is kind of a linchpin for for the Jesuits. Right. So, I mean, it makes sense that you want to start with with God um, as primary cause because that's how anything exists at all, let alone humans who have free will and all of that. But why can't it just be that, you know, to to use an analogy, like let's say, you know, God gives each person a pencil and that represents your free will and he wants you to write a beautiful story and he's there to guide you, to teach you how to write Uh, But he's not going to, like, pick up your hand and move the pen for you and tell you what story to write. Um, Why can't it just be that, like, free will is is God almost giving us a tool and then saying, use it as you like. I'll help you use it the way I want you to, but I'm not going to force you to. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and and actually um, what you suggest has been suggested before by a Dominican although a very controversial one. So, so I, believe it or not, um, the, the two positions I just outlined both go farther than what you just suggested. Mm. Um, so the, actually the Dominicans and Jesuits are both closer to each other than to the view that you just gave. Oh, so really? They're both stronger, right? Yeah. So here's here's an example historically. There was a very controversial Dominican named Durandus of St. Porcent, and he held a view just like the one you just articulated, where he thought that God created us and he created all of our powers and capacities and not only that, he sustained in being us with all those powers and capacities and then kind of let us do, do our own thing. He just kind of, um, he, 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 he doesn't concur, right, like the Jesuits held in every detail of every action, but he conserves us. He creates and conserves us. And, and, and yet um, both sides, the Dominicans and the Jesuits, thought that the mere um, conservationism of Durandus didn't go far enough. And here's why. Um, the reason is because um, if we really believe that God is the creator of all, right, he's the first universal cause, um, while on a kind of everyday kind of common sense level, you'd want to affirm everything that you just affirmed, you'd also need to go a little further to be logically consistent and say that even the good, particular good actions we do, every, as- every positive aspect of those actions has to somehow be attributable to God. And if it's just in a very broader general way, God created me, he created my capacities, created my circumstances, that's great. He did do all that. Everybody agrees. But there's something else that I did, apparently on my own, mm-hmm. on, on this view, that's not getting accounted for. And that's something that not only the Dominicans, but even the Jesuits would be concerned to, to deal with. And so the Jesuits deal with it by this doctrine of general concurrence, where God is kind of efficiently causal of my action, though in a non-determining way. Mm-hmm. And the Dominicans go even further, and they say he's efficiently causal in a way that actually settles what I choose. Yeah, because I remember I, I was telling you before we started that I, I've gotten into discussions with this with my brother-in-law who's who's very interested in this debate, and 
he was explaining to me that like humans can't reduce potency to act that only god can reduce potency to act because if human beings could reduce potency to act we'd sort of be like little gods in a sense you know yeah um which leads me to wonder like what is free will then if it's not the ability to do something you know to actualize a, a potency yeah so uh unfortunately your brother-in-law is not here to jump into the discussion <laughs> but, but let, let me let me try to recast what i think he said okay uh so, so I, I i shouldn't put words in his mouth but um can we reduce potency to act yes we absolutely can i think any good dominican would say absolutely we can because um any good thomist and depending on how broadly or narrowly you construe that i suppose both sides in this debate might be broadly thomistic but mm -hmm. definitely the dominicans um they're, they're all concerned to affirm secondary causes right okay. so so creatures can really do stuff and so um can we reduce potency to act yes but with this caveat and here's the point that, that your brother-in-law i think is making we can't create ex nihilo right and so secondary causes insofar as their causes do have you know causal capacities to to actually you know reduce potency to act i can for example turn the stove on and make a make a pot of coffee and and the fire on the stove can reduce the the cold water to boiling right it can actualize right that and, and then so forth right so both my free agency and the natural causality of, of the stove and the fire are bringing about effects in the world um however uh that that can't happen without the action of the first cause so secondary cause secondary causes are real we can reduce uh potency to act and our free will is one way that we do that um, but we can't do that apart from God. So we, we reduce potency to act, but not as the first cause. So we're, we're caused causes. I think right. that's the thing. Any creature is a caused cause. Any creature that acts is a caused cause. And um, that's, that's a very important principle. So um, it's true that both sides in this debate have different definitions of free choice, like they would define it differently. Okay. But both would say that there are caused causes, and that we have to give some account of God's primary causality. Okay, so even the the Jesuits wouldn't look at it almost like a a domino effect where you know God causes A, which causes B, which causes C. Like they would see God's operation through B and C and D and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's behind the term concurrence. And it's okay. very etymology. God is running with you. And so the famous example Molina used is two men towing a barge. Right? You picture. Um, like in one of the canals, right? Yeah. Um, two guys, each with a rope at 45-degree angles to the barge, pulling the thing along, right? And so they're, they're concurring with each other. No one of them is strong enough to pull the barge by himself, but together they do it. And so God's causal action is kind of like that. Like it's, it's through to the effect. Um, but this is the difference. It's two concurrent, two parallel streams of causality. And so um, while the Jesuits mean to account for um, the origination of our activity as secondary causes in God. The criticism is always, but isn't there something there that's not being accounted for? Because if it's two parallel right. causes, and you're the determinant, and God's not, you know, really involved in making the determination, didn't you essentially introduce something into your choice ex nihilo? And mm. that's what gets the Dominican hackles up, right? Because they're correct to say, you know, we're causes, sure, but we're caused causes, and so one thing we cannot do is create ex nihilo. Now, of all the different ways in which we exercise agency, right, in the world, some of which are very like the way that animals and natural causes exercise agency, what sets us apart is that we do have free choice. And that is a lot like creation ex nihilo. It's probably more like creation ex nihilo than anything else. Sure. But it isn't actually creation ex nihilo. So it's rooted in our being in the image of God with a rational soul 
um, our rationality is the foundation of our freedom. And so being uh, having intellectual capacities allows us to conceptualize different alternatives, different options over which we could exercise our will and therefore choose, right, settle ourselves among different options. And that's one of the things that we do that other things around us don't do. And that makes us in God's, one of the things that makes us in God's image, just like St. Thomas opens his moral treatise of the Summa and the Prima Secundae with um, a reflection on how man is the imago dei. He goes back to John Damascene and says he's endowed with intellect and the capacity for self-movement and free will. And so there's there's something that's reflective of creation, and there's a sense in which we you know we, we're determining ourselves through our choices. So choosing is much more about who we become through choosing than it is about what we did, right? right? Because choices last. And so there's a sense in which we're kind of like understand this in the broad analogous sense in which I mean it. We're like morally self-creating, but we're not literally creating ex nihilo when we choose. And so that's the thing that the critics of the Jesuits are worried about. They're saying, aren't you leaving some kernel out of out of account there? That's that we're doing of our own. And it's also, you know, on a common sense everyday level, like kind of bring this down, um, you've probably heard the adage, um, work as if everything depends on you, yeah. <laughs> pray as if everything depends on God. Right. And and that's, um, you know, that, that's meant with good intentions, but actually um, behind that lies a very mistaken understanding of how really? God is... Right, because because there's a kind of Pelagianism to that, right? Yeah, it, it, it's sort of like it's sort of like pray as if it all depends on God. Well, actually, it does. It does, yeah. it does all depend on God. <laughs> so, so I mean, it, like if we go around thinking we should we should pray as if it, it depended on God, and then really work, but like yeah, like because it actually depends all on us. Right. Well, it's kind of like uh, the you know God helps those who helps themselves. It's like God's not going to help you unless you're doing something, which is kind of the opposite. I mean, in reality, like God wants us to come to Him in our, our weakness, and then He's you know, his power is made perfect. Yeah, no, and there's there's no denying that we have to be involved and God right. wants us to be involved. I mean, look, the, the glory of creation is that whether we're talking about free choice or anything else in the world, there's something other than God. And that's marvelous. Like God mm. made something else. Yeah. And that's what glorifies him. The existence of the other thing glorifies him. So when it comes to us and our activities, God wants us to be active and involved. And, and when we exercise our freedom, that when we exercise it well, especially... That is glorifying and reflecting our creator. Um, and, you know, like Augustine says, the God who created us, and I forget where this comes up, but I'm pretty sure it's, this is Augustine. The God who created you without you will not redeem you yeah. without you. Okay, so that's that's true. Um, that's true. We, we have to be involved. Um, but we shouldn't assume that it really just all depends on us and just make pretend that that it, that it depends on God. That, that leads in, in practical life and practical spirituality that leads to a kind of Pelagian spirituality, which isn't which isn't entirely healthy. Right, and just to like clarify for the listeners, like when you say a Pelagian spirituality, what do you mean by Pelagian? Yeah, so I, I mean um, in simple terms, like the idea that we save ourselves by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, mm -hmm. right? So Pelagius was a fourth-century British monk who, in many ways, had a lot of you know, maybe good things to say about the spiritual life, but he ended up falling into heresy by thinking that we could take the first step in our own salvation, that really, if we just had the law and we just had free will, that was enough, right? Those things themselves were grace. And that that just with, with knowledge of the law and with free will, we could kind of pull ourselves up from our fallen state and save ourselves. And so that kind of um, self-starting, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality is actually a heresy that was condemned by the church. St. Augustine is probably the most famous opponent of the Pelagians. 
And like all heresies, um, they, they seem to keep coming back yeah. in different forms <laughs> under different names. Sure. And and like like all heresies too, it's not just a theoretical mistake. It's not just a textbook academic matter. It's it's that if you make these mistakes theoretically about grace and, and free will and salvation, you're gonna live a certain kind of moral life. And that's not gonna allow you to be the person God created you to be for all eternity. And so you've got to get these things right so that you can be the person God wants you to be and, and be that person in, into eternity. Right. Well, it seems like there's kind of an opposite tendency in some of the spiritual writers and even in scripture where it's like, if Pelagian says like, you know, through your own will and action, you can kind of do it all yourself. You see this other tendency that says, you know, as Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Um, and, and rather than emphasizing like God giving us this power of free will and then wanting us to use it for good, you see this emphasis on like, denying your free will you know not mm-hmm. my will but yours be done thy will be done oh that's good so so okay i i thought i saw where you were going there so i <laughs> I, I love the my not my will but thine be done i think that's that's great right but um but the point is that this is this doesn't have to be understood as a kind of quietism i think the mm-hmm. error that you're trying to get at yeah. is is a kind of quietism and maybe there's a few related things too that that could come out of that that i'll mention but um so i think here's the key not my will, but thine be done. That's that is where we want to go, right? Because God is calling on us to exercise our free will. But the whole task of living a Christian life is to align our freedom with God's plan. And so it's not God's plan instead of our freedom. And it's not my agenda in opposition to God, as if it's some kind of zero sum game. Right. And this is the error of the moderns, right? This is this is the whole problem and, and with a longer conversation, maybe another day, we could talk about the connections of, of De Auxilius to modern atheism, because I think mm. that there are some important connections. But when you come off the heels of this unresolved debate where it seems that Christianity cannot give a theoretical accounting of itself, it's not by accident that you soon run into the development of modern atheism. And on that view, it's a zero sum. It's either God or creatures. Right. And so if man is truly to be free, like Feuerbach thought, God must be dead. Right, and so that's not our view. Our view is not that it's either God, God's plan, or my plan, or my agenda. Instead, the whole project of Christian life is all about me finding, you know, what is God's will for me, and then aligning my will in freedom to that plan. Now, you're right. The opposite errors are are ones that sometimes even are prevalent. Like, so you could have Pelagianism over on one side, but on the other side, you could have a kind of quietism where we think because God is the first universal cause. You know everything's all pre-scripted and taken care of, and I just need to like go with the flow. Right, and, and then that's also a problem because then we don't really commit ourselves to finding and carrying out God's plan for us, and so we fail to use the freedom that God get, that God gave us. And related to that, there's maybe two other things that can sometimes go wrong. One is in in affirming God's sovereignty and His universal causality, we might you know fall into the errors of double predestination or this idea that that you know. God has predetermined me you know, for hell, right? Or God determines my will to sinning and to evildoing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a mistake that has actually been made, right, in some forms of Christianity. And even if that's not super common, it's still out there, right? It's still a mistake we can fall into. But something that's very common that is um, that, that may not seem related but I think is closely related is universalism. So it's a much yeah. more common view today that we don't need For to sure. worry at all yeah. about hell. Right? Right. Everybody's <laughs> going to heaven, right? Right. And, and, and the thing to notice about universalism and limited atonement or double predestination is that they both um, fork off from the same supposition about God's causality, which is that if God's the only cause in town, and if you think people are in hell, well, then you've got limited atonement and double predestination. 
But if you can't stomach that alternative and you still think God's the only cause in town, then the alternative is everybody goes to heaven. Right, right. And so if you assume that, that has a lot of practical spiritual implications too. Like if I don't need to worry about it, then I don't need to really take my life seriously if I'm being logically consistent. I mean, God's going to God's gonna understand in the end, you know? So, right. so I can pretty much, I don't have to be earnest about living my Christian life, filling my vocation, taking the moral law seriously. And I think that's a much more prevalent spiritual and pastoral challenge today. But it's interesting to see how, like Newman pointed out in his essay on development of doctrine, how you can have an underlying principle and it can give rise to two seemingly contradictory points of view, even though they share a common a common principle. And I think right. that happens here with limited atonement and universalism. Hmm. So that brings up the question, though, of God's will. I mean, God is all-powerful. God creates ex nihilo. Does everything that God wills necessarily come to pass, or are there things that God wills that, because of our free choice, don't happen? You know, like God wills for you to do X, but he gives you the freedom, and you decide to do Y. Well, the first thing, of course, <laughs> is that there's a great mystery, right, yeah. to the relationship between our freedom and, and God. Just like the Trinity is a great mystery and the Incarnation is a great mystery, here we're dealing with, with a great mystery of the faith. But I think there's an important distinction we have to make in order to answer that question. And that is, um, when we say God wills something, what do we mean by willing? Um, because not all willing is the same, right? Yeah. There's, there's that which, and we know this from our ordinary experience, right? There's that which we intend to do. And then there's what we, what we tolerate or what we accept. Accepting, I suppose, is a kind of willing. But it's not direct willing like intending or right. choosing. And so, you know, God as first universal cause, does anything happen um, outside of his right, outside of his governments? No. Um, God, you know, whatever God wills comes to pass. But that doesn't mean that God wills my sins, that God wills evil. It just means that, right, God's as first universal cause is in charge of what goes on. So no evil happens unless God at least puts up with it, right? It did, right. God, God doesn't have to put up with the bad things that happen. He does. Well, why does he? Ultimately, we can't say exactly why. That's, that's a mystery, but we can offer some reasons. You know, why does he tolerate some evils? Well, because certain good things happen that maybe otherwise wouldn't. But can we give you the exact calculus as if there were even an exact calculus for why God chose this instead of that? That's part of the inscrutable mystery of God. So um, God's, God's will is always fulfilled, but in order to understand that, we have to be very careful about explaining what we mean by that. So God's will is always fulfilled. You can't pull one over on God, even right. when you sin. Um, <laughs> but God doesn't want you to sin, and so he might put up with it, and he might have good and ultimately inscrutable reasons, inscrutable to our limited intellects, inscrutable reasons for putting up with your sinning or my sinning. Um, and, and he somehow enfolds that into his plan. And that's part of the marvel of God, right? God can yeah. even write straight with our crooked lines, right? So he puts up for his own reasons with the evils and failures that, that, that we have and that we, that we commit. And he can somehow turn even that to good in the end. And he, we see that he does that, right? And so um, what he wills comes to pass. But it's not the case that everything that happens is intended by God as if my mortally sinning, for example, is intended from all eternity by God. So I think it's really important to distinguish between side effects and intentions and to say that, you know, God's will is fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in different ways in respect to different states of affairs. There's the good that he intends to bring about and, you know, causally, positively, causally brings about. 
And then there's the evil that he tolerates, that he that he accepts. That, you know, in that no, knowing that this will happen, he, he accepts it and he works some good out of it. But he doesn't, right? In fact, the very definition of sin is that it contravenes God's will. I mean, that's what makes yeah. it to be sin. It's, it's you, you, you know, when when I sin, I'm doing what God doesn't want me to do, and somehow God puts up with that. Yeah, is that what we refer to as God's permissive will? Yeah, exactly. So you have God's permissive will, what He allows to happen, but doesn't necessarily intend to happen and then what would you call god would it be like his active will like what he intends or is there a term for that i think it's helpful you know to say active will or his creative will yeah. his positive will his god's intentions i think all those you know get get at the idea right and is there any is there any, are there any other distinctions about god's will are there any other types of I guess ways in which God wills things. Well, there's we have to be careful about how much we say about God's yeah. will because God is ultimately um, ultimately mysterious. And right. one of the mistakes in history has been that theologians have had a lot to say about distinctions of different huh. kinds of willing in God. And um, sometimes that's certain things that they've said is helpful. But the tendency that we always have to check is supposing that we we know what God is in Himself, and then we proceed to hash that out. And we have to instead start from the recognition that we we actually don't know what God is in himself, right? Yeah. We, we know God's created effects, and God's created effects reflect him. This is St. Thomas's approach for the a posteriori approach to knowing God, right? Um, it's, it involves a kind of negative element that, that creatures reflect God, but it's creatures that we know, right, through our experience. And then we can, right, infer things by analogy and by negation about how God is, but we don't start from, you know, a set of you know, principles that we, we know this is what God is. Rather, we use language and ideas analogously of God drawn from the world that we do know around us. And so we have to be really careful about saying, oh, we know what knowledge is. Yeah. It's like in our case. And so God must be like that. Well, no, we get the analogy backwards. That's a very common mistake. The common mistake is to flip the analogy and to take you know, creation as paradigmatic. And then God must be like right. that. And it's and it, that's to turn the whole thing on its head. Right, cre- God's cre- in our image. <laughs> exactly. And that, that's that's the whole, and, and to make a connection to modern atheism, there again, that's the exact mistake, right? For Feuerbach, it's eventually you get the idea that God is just a projection of the human psyche, right? And so he's made in our image instead of the other way around. And, and it just, it flips the thing. So, okay, when we talk about God's knowledge, we have to remember we don't know God in himself. We know what he's revealed to us, and we know what he's revealed to us you know, through the created order as well. And um, So there are many distinctions that theologians bring in, um, his pre-volitional and post-volitional willing. In this debate that we've been talking about um, with scientia media, or middle knowledge, um, the classical distinction which you find in St. Thomas is between God's simple knowledge and his knowledge of vision. And this is, you know, parsing out two logical moments, if you will, according to our way of knowing. It's not to say that in actually in God himself there are two knowledges or that there's two phases that are sequenced. God, of course, is eternal and simple and one, so there's no divisions within God. He's not tensed or he's not living in time. But according to our discursive way of knowing, uh, St. Thomas distinguishes between God's uh, what he calls simple knowledge, which is pre-volitional, prior to his active willing and his act of creating, whereby God knows all possibilities that he could you know, bring about. And then by his knowledge of vision, he sees the actual world that he created. So he knows this world that is you know, resultant from his creative act of will. So that's a very common distinction that enters into the debate. 
And all sides accept that distinction. Um, but what the Jesuits do is they introduce a middle knowledge in between those two. So this middle knowledge... It's like the hypothetical exactly, kind of... Exactly. The, yeah. the knowledge of what hypothetical free creatures would conditionally do under certain conditions, that's somewhere in between. It's pre-volitional, but it's in some sense like the knowledge of vision because it circumscribes the set of God's possibilities, right? There's the range of what's possible, right? and then there's the range of what God could really bring about, which is narrower because of your free will, right? Because God doesn't determine your will. He could create Mary Rose. He could not create Mary Rose, but... If he creates Mary Rose in this set of circumstances, it's up to Mary Rose what she does. And so he can't bring about Mary Rose in these circumstances. Mary Rose does B instead of A mm-hmm. um, under circumstances, given circumstances. God can't bring about Mary Rose A-ing in those same circumstances. He could bring about different circumstances where Mary Rose A's. Yeah. But he can't make Mary Rose A-ing in those circumstances if, in fact, she B's. Right. And that's because of you. It's because of your, you know, it's because of your inviolable freedom. And so what this sets up is a picture where you've got the range of the possible, which is wide open, God's knowledge of vision. You've got the range, as one author puts it, of, of what is feasible to God, what is creatable to God, which is narrower because it's limited already by the hypothetical possibility of you and your freedom. And then there's the actual world that in light of that knowledge, God actually brings about. So that's the Jesuit picture, and that's very controversial. Um, they, they, you know, critics will say that this middle knowledge is introducing something that, you know, the tradition never acknowledged, and it seems to have no grounding. Because after all, there is no you yet to, yeah. to determine whether, whether A or B occurs under these circumstances. And so that's kind of the, the most um, damning criticism of middle knowledge. Right. But, I, I mean, it seems like... I mean, just as you were giving that example earlier, like we can imagine hypothetical situations. You know, I can imagine you, you're going to drive home later today and maybe you'll go straight home or maybe you'll make a stop. You know, maybe you'll get a flat tire. Maybe you'll get a speeding ticket. I don't know. You know, I, and I can imagine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine like what you might do in particular search- situations. Um, and that's just all very hypothetical. And if I can imagine hypotheticals, then isn't it more so the case that God can have this knowledge of hypotheticals? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a strong case, and that's exactly what Molina would have said, right? So um, within that stream of thought, there, there are two main answers to that question. And Molina's view, the original view, was just that. It's that, um, well, God, if we can make these kinds of predictions, God, who's omniscient, right, certainly knows what I would do if he were to create me in these circumstances. And so he calls this super comprehension. It's like God super comprehends every possible creature. He knows them so thoroughly as the first cause that he knows just what they would do if he put them in any circumstances. And at the end of the day, you have to say, um, but is that really just conjectural knowledge? Like, is it just really good, really reliable conjecture? Because in your case, you might accurately predict, just like, you know, you hear about all these algorithms now with big tech, right. And, right, they're <laughs> sending you ads, you know, where are they coming from? But they're so accurate. They're yeah. exactly, you know, um, they're predicting, you know, what your likes are and what your interests are. So suppose God is like that to the nth degree, right? Um, but the point is, it's still conjecture. It's still, it's, it's not infallible knowledge. Right. And so, you know, Molina has that challenge. It's like, is God conjecturing or is he really knowing? And if he's really knowing, what grounds that? And Molina's answer is, well, he's God. He's omniscient. And mm-hmm. end of story. He bites the bullet. The alternative, uh, his Jesuit confrere Francisco Suarez, uh, who in some ways was more influential, actually, than, than Molina, um, gave a different answer. And he gave a, he gave a logical answer. He said, well, it's, it's not just that, you know, 
God has infinite knowledge capacity, and so therefore he knows what you would do. Um, it's that what you would do is inherently knowable in itself. And, oh, here, and, here, and here's why. And yeah. so, so if it's knowable, God must know it because he's omniscient. But here's why it's knowable. Um, if, if God were to create Mary Rose in these circumstances, she's either going to A or she's going to not A, right? Because one of the two contradictories on the principle of what they call in logic bivalence, right? One's got to be true and the other's got to be false. Right, so every proposition or it's contradictory, right? It's got to be one of the two has to be true because there's no middle value between truth and falsity. So with with that logical principle in mind, Suarez said, uh, well, one of the two alternatives has got to be the case, and whichever one it is, I mean, I don't know it, but God surely must know it because it's intrinsically knowable. Mm-hmm. So that's what Suarez says. Now there's there's an interesting counter argument to that, but you have to admit that's a that's a pretty strong attempt to try to to justify middle knowledge, but you still run into this problem, which is that there's no Mary Rose and there's no circumstances in which Mary Rose is placed prior to God's creative decision. Hmm. So God has these alleged knowledge of these hypothetical you know, outcomes, but there's no actual states of affairs that ground that knowledge. And so unless you're going to say that there's groundless truth, which is a whole other stream of the conversation, um, then it sounds like you've got, a, you've got a problem. So this is one of the like classic aspects of the debate with middle knowledge you know can there be middle knowledge or not and those are you know two of the most powerful ways to criticize it and defend it yeah well it seems like it can also get god sort of into trouble so to speak when you think about his foreknowledge of creating people who went on to do like grave evils you know yeah people bring up the the question they're like if you met Hitler as a baby, you know, would you kill him knowing that doing that would save millions of people, which, I mean, I don't think you can, you can say that, but you could, you can't put that on us, but you could maybe put it on God and say, well, why would God create this person knowing he was going to do so many wicked things? You know, because either you have to say he wasn't sure it was going to happen. It was just a possibility. Or you have to say he knew it and permitted it. And then it almost makes it seem like he therefore caused it since only God had the power to like stop it, right? Yeah, you know, and there's there's two related things I think going on there. One is, um, does God's middle knowledge really amount to anything any better than the alternative that the that the Jesuits are criticizing? So, in other words, if God has this certain knowledge based on the circumstances of what any possible creature would do, doesn't that just leave you with another kind of determinism? And so if you're going to settle for determinism, why not just go with the Dominican alternative of <laughs> f- f- physical predetermination? Yeah. Right? So, so the allegation is that middle knowledge doesn't really get you anywhere, and it leads in the end to just a determinism of the circumstances. So if God really knows absolutely, not just conjecturally, this is going to happen if you're created in these circumstances, then it seems like the circumstances are determining what you do. I think that there's a response to that, but you can at least see the force of the objection, right? That that, that the circumstances seem to be determinative of your will. The Jesuits, of course, would say there's just a correlation. There's not a causation, right? That you in these circumstances, you happen to do this in these circumstances, but it's not the circumstance making you do what you do. I think that there's some, some, I think there's some credibility to that reply to the objection, but you can see where the objection comes from. The second thing, though, that you said about the, with the Hitler example, um, this gets us to, I think, what is one of the, many people say is the most powerful argument against God's existence today, which is the argument from evil. Right. And it's not so much a theoretical, abstract, you know, metaphysical argument about whether or not there's in fact a God. Um, instead, it says, you know, look at these horrendous evils in the world. Um, given the reality of these horrendous evils like Auschwitz and things like that, 
Um, could there really be, not just God, but the God that Christians profess to believe in, a God who's both omniscient and all good, and at the same time these evils? Could those three things yeah. go here? That's a classic argument of J.L. Mackey, but it's been renewed by other people more recently. And in fact, you find that same argument in Aquinas, so it's not it's not new with Mackey in the 1950s. It goes way sure. back. Um, and, and so I think the thing to keep in mind uh, with, with that line of criticism is that... Um, it can seem to us, it, it has a lot of, um, superficially, it has a lot of plausibility, right? It's pretty hard to imagine what possible reasons God could ever have for bringing about, right, an Adolf Hitler who goes on to do the, if God knew that was going to happen, how could that possibly? And and we have to be very careful because we're talking about this, which is a, a lived suffering, right? That people, right. I mean, and we're talking about it in an academic way. So sure. we have to, we have to be, you know, very sensitive to that, but, um, but, but it's hard to imagine how there could be any justification. But but the point is this, philosophically, um, right? That that has a kind of emotional purchase. Mm-hmm. But but we have to realize that philosophically, to hold that view supposes that we have God's prudence, right? Or that we we have the kind of perspective on God's causal possibilities that only God has, right? Because we we don't. I mean, Christians don't claim to know exactly why. God tolerates the evils he tolerates. Christians yeah. are very apophatic. They're very silent about that. Like, they do they do point to reasons. Or at least the, the, I should say, the intellectually honest ones. I mean, you do see some people who will say, well, God caused 9-11 because of this particular sin that your nation has committed, or God yeah. caused, I mean, people say really anti-Semitic things. You know, God caused the Holocaust because of these things horrible, that yeah. the Jews didn't believe in Jesus or something, you know? Right, and and that's that's really overstepping the limits of what we can know and say about God. Again, right. remembering the, the, the negative God talk, that, that God is incomprehensible. And so uh, what we have to say is that, you know, there are, there are reasons we can point to as to why God tolerates evil in general and what he can do with it, what good he can bring of it. But we, we can't ever say exactly why God permits this evil instead of not, or why he permits evil, this evil instead of that evil, or why he prefers to bring about this you know, world with these goods at the expense of these evils instead of others. And, and, and yet it can seem like how could there possibly ever be mm-hmm. such a justification for these horrendous evils? But we have to stop and say, in order to know if that goes through philosophically, we'd have to actually have God's agential perspective. In other words, we'd have to stand... You know how just on a human level, it's very hard, I mean, not impossible, but hard to sometimes evaluate the decisions of others if you're not right. in their standpoint. For sure. Right? In order to evaluate morally someone's someone's behavior, you've got to really, you know, stand from a first-person perspective and see, you know, what were the alternatives, um, not be Monday night quarterback. Mm-hmm. Well, so much more so in respect to God's governance of the universe, right? In order to really know, we'd have to, you know, have God's perspective and see what good is he going to bring from this? What was the expense? What was the alternative? And unless we can give a philosophically sound accounting for for how we'd have the perspective whereby we could create God's prudential choices, then we don't really have a cogent way to criticize God's you know prudential choices. We have to just remain silent before the mystery and say it was awful. You know mm-hmm. what Hitler did, what you know any number of other things. Nine Eleven was really awful, and I don't ultimately know why instead of not, but. Um, I trust God. I believe God. I think God is good. I look at the world around me and I see that he made it to be and it reflects his goodness and his glory. And I have hope that the God who could call into existence from nothing, from nothing, this world, is the God who has the capacity to recreate from the ashes. 
And we have to keep an eschatological perspective and to realize that when God is tolerating these evils, the end of the story hasn't happened yet. And at least, you know, secular humanism gets going by kind of taking Christianity and leaving half the message behind. (laughs) It's very parasitic. And, And so if you want to evaluate and critique Christianity, you've got to take the entirety of what Christianity professes. And part of that is the eschatological story that in the end, God is going to bring justice. He is going to rectify all the wrongs. And he's building now that kingdom that will eventually be realized. And and we won't know till we see that finished product how all these evils fit into it. It's like there was an example that I once read of that it's kind of like looking at a tapestry from the underside. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you look at the backside of a tapestry, um, it doesn't look like much. It's pretty ugly. It's a right. mess. But when you flip it over and see the finished product, you realize why all those stitches are where they are. Right. And, you know, we, ha- we don't have that perspective. And so, so the, you know, the critique of the existence of a Christian God doesn't go through unless we know a whole lot more about God than any straight-thinking Christian thinks we know. So the irony of that is that those, right, the, the, the skeptic, the, the atheist, is actually, for his argument to go through, it, it supposes that we can know a whole lot more about God <laughs> than the Christians he's criticizing suppose we can know about God. Right. Well, and also, too, I mean, you know, the question is is looking at a real experience of human suffering, and whatever side you fall on, if you take the side of theism versus atheism, neither response does anything to eliminate the suffering or the potential for suffering. Like, it still exists. The only difference is that in the the Christian or the theistic worldview, like you said, there can be a final justice. Because if you take the atheistic worldview, you still say, well, there's immense human suffering in this life. And at the end of the day, the final fate of those who either were abused versus their abusers, it's the same thing. You know, in the end, there's no possibility for justice. Whereas at least, I mean, with the Christian answer, you have to deal with the problem of we can't understand here now why God allowed this to happen, but we at least know that like there's going to be a justice in the end where it's not like the same outcome for you know both the victims and the victimizers. Yeah, and history has shown the will to power has very destructive results, right? The the alternative yeah. to Christian eschatological hope is the will to power, right? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be the underman. Right. And, and that and that's and that's very destructive. Um, it, it's it's a, it's a Pelagian attempt. <laughs> Essentially, what what this is is it's a, it's kind of Pelagian attempt to realize the kingdom now, right? And and we don't want to be the underling, and so right, um, and and so instead, what what does Christianity propose? It proposes charity. It proposes charity. It proposes instead of some great system whereby we realize the kingdom and establish justice, but you know we never actually get there. We just end up crushing different people. Um, instead, it proposes that we do what good we can in this very broken world, but what, what real good we can do for our neighbor without any false hopes about our capacity to do the impossible. And so it's a religion of love. It professes love, right, as the ultimate principle of life. And, and so love of neighbor, if that were lived out more perfectly, yeah. right, um, that, that would be, right, that, that's what we need to do. That's what we need to invest our free will in is trying to conform ourselves to the demands of charity. Right. So let's talk a little bit about grace, okay? Let's complicate it a little (laughs) bit more. So, you know, we have God's creative will. We have human free will. We have God's, you know, ultimate plan or or will or desires for things to come about. And if we want to align our will with God's will, he's going to give us certain helps to get there, right? Yeah. And... Is there a distinction between maybe sort of natural helps that God might give, like 
you know, maybe he makes you with certain, you know, intellectual capacities or physical capacities versus the supernatural helps that he gives. I think it is useful to st- distinguish the two, though um, keeping in mind that uh, God is, you know, God is always up to bringing about the existence of what's outside of him. So it's it broadly, I think, creative in both cases, right? But what's, you know, if that's the case, what's the point of distinguishing nature and supernature, nature and grace? Um, well, I think there's a couple of important reasons to make the distinction. One is to just make it clear that God is causally involved uh, on the natural plane, not only on the redemptive plane. Hmm. So I would say that grace, I mean, grace is an analogous term, and what exactly it means is broad-ranging, depending on the context. What do you mean? It's it's an analogous term. So so you can use the word grace to mean a variety of different things. And so you have to specify, like, what are you talking about? Grace is, it's not that grace is just univocally one thing, right? So... Grace has different senses. Like we might talk about habitual grace, which is the abiding disposition whereby, you know, we're made pleasing to God, we're made children of God, and so forth. You know, we abide in, in, in that in that disposition. On the other hand, there are these helps, like you mentioned. The, these are the auxilia. That's where the the term de auxilies comes from. These these aids or these helps whereby God moves our will to do meritorious good. And so I think that it's useful to distinguish supernatural help from natural help because one of the things that does is it makes clear to us that it's not as if we're just running under our own steam mm-hmm. when it comes to our you know non-meritorious actions of whatever it may be. Like St. Thomas will use the examples of somebody who's you know building a vineyard or building a house. I mean, you know, somebody who's not necessarily converted um, isn't sinning in every one of his works just right. because he's not converted. And that's actually controversial, right? Luther thought, for example, that um, total depravity of the will uh, prior to justification, everything you did was a sin. And by the way, even after justification, <laughs> you're still a sinner and justified at the same time somehow. That's a separate, yeah. I don't want to sidetrack. But but um, but for Thomas, he affirms nature. He affirms the goodness of creation. He says, even in the unredeemed state, you can do some good stuff, like not necessarily meritorious, like whereby you're, you're earning heavenly reward, but, I mean, somebody who's an obdurate sinner could build a vineyard, right? Sure. Um, the drug dealer on the cruise ship that sees the, the baby fall into the pool, like, can rescue the baby for, you know, non-self-interested motives. It's not just that he wants to show off. I mean, he might right. just want to save the baby. I mean, like, there's natural good that people, even in the fallen state, can do. So we have these natural capacities. Um, but the important thing is to exercise those capacities. So to go a step beyond what your example proposed a minute ago, not only does God create us with these capacities, but he also moves us to act on a natural plane. Just like when I you know, go to make coffee and I turn the stove on, right? The fire is heating the kettle. It's not the fire you know, up and running on its own, like in a deistic universe apart sure. from God. God's active in and through the fire. It's not God instead of the fire. It's the fire. Mm-hmm. But the fire, God's causally involved in the fire heating the kettle. And so too on the natural plane. So one reason to make that distinction is to affirm that I mean, it's clear God is operative in the realm of grace and the supernatural. But don't forget, God is also operative on the natural plane in all of our operations. Um, but the second thing is, you know, affirming, it's important to affirm the supernatural because there are things that we can do that are beyond our, our capacities just as normal human beings, that as recreated children of God, we have a capacity to do things we couldn't otherwise do, that God gives us a new nature. And this is amazing. Like, this is... God doesn't just fix what's broken mm-hmm. when, when we're redeemed. He actually makes us his children. Yeah. In a non-metaphorical sense, we become partakers of the divine nature. 
And so when that happens, we're just like by nature, we have certain capacities. Well, when we're, when we're given this new nature, we have a new set of capacities. And, and so now by exercising our freedom right, as redeemed, as renewed and restored in the state of habitual sanctifying grace, we can perform actions that actually make us holier, that actually you know, help us to be greater in the kingdom, right? that, we, that we earn heavenly reward. And that's, you know, that's necessary to explain. Right? Like we believe that we can merit, but the basis for our merit is grace. So it's not this idea that you know, we can you know, have a title to some return from God just on our own, um, you know, on our own, we, God owes us nothing at all. Right. But insofar as he makes us his children, then, like Augustine says, and the church, the magisterium has said, you know, drawing on Augustine, that we can merit, and that when we merit, God is crowning his own gifts. Isn't mm-hmm. that beautiful? It's kind of like, you think of, like, with kids. Um, I've, I've got seven kids, like yeah. you mentioned, and so um, holiday time is always fun. Birthdays are always <laughs> fun. And at a certain age, right, um, there, there's this real intense desire to be involved and to, like, you know, get mom a gift, get my brother a gift. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I don't have a job. I don't have an income. I can't get to the store, <laughs> right? So what do we do? Or, or what about when it's your birthday, right? It's dad's birthday, right? And I want to get dad a present. Um, well, you kind of end up supplying them. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lot like that, you know, in, in, with us and God. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, do we merit? Yes, we do merit, right? And Scripture, I think, is clear about that if we read it, you know, honestly, straightforwardly, the plain sense. But um, but we got to be careful what we mean by that. It's not as if we think God owes us something. It's it's We're kind of like the kid wanting to give Dad a birthday present. And, right. and when we merit, God is crowning his own gifts. So... Um, he's got to give us the basis. Um, he's, it, merit starts from grace, and without what he has already given us, we don't have any you know, ability to merit. So it's in a kind of, in that kind of extended sense. Right. Yeah. I guess you know, grace gets complicated because first of all, we have so many different types of grace that we talk about. Like you mentioned, habitual grace, actual grace, um, various other kinds mm-hmm. of grace. And and I wonder, is that just a distinction that we've made? Uh to help ourselves understand the ways that God is working? Or do you think that there's almost like two, imagine like two highways. There's sort of like the natural highway and then there's the super highway. And sometimes God's going to send his grace or his wor- His helps down the natural highway, which maybe takes a little longer, you know, or sometimes he's going to use the super highway. You know, I think it's both, um, yeah. bo- both in, in both respects to what you just said. So I think it's the case that God is operative on both planes, the natural and the supernatural. And that we have to see those as kind of continuous, distinct, but continuous, that what's in play in both instances is God's creative causality, right? God, who is, who is being itself, brings about effects, and God's proper effect is the being of things, right? And in simplest terms, God is being itself, right? He's ipsum esse subsistence. That's what Thomas will say. He's, he's subsistent existence. He's transcendent, pure act, pure being. And so when he acts causally, he brings about the being of things. So whether we're talking about nature or grace, it's always God bringing about existence. But it is helpful, like for reasons we, we just talked about, to distinguish his natural and his supernatural activity. So I think he is operative at the same time on both of those planes. But then within the supernatural, when we're talking about grace, I think it is helpful to make certain distinctions because, again, grace can refer to different realities. Um, and so this is why, like in classical theology, you'll see the distinctions that you have, like, and, and 
there's many, of course. There's operative and cooperative. There's prevenient and subsequent and habitual and actual, right. <laughs> and so on and so forth. The important thing is to is to be careful always that we have a a warrant for making the distinctions we're making, so that we don't go into speculative overload or speculative inflation. Right. right? So, um, in De Auxilis, one of the one of the you know famous ways is that that that, that this came up was that a new uh, or allegedly new distinction was introduced between sufficient and efficacious grace, whereas in St. Thomas, you don't at least explicitly, verbally have that distinction. But, you know, there's a long theological tradition, for example, going back to Augustine and his debates with the Pelagians in the, in the 4th and in 5th, early 5th century, where he distinguishes between operating and cooperating grace, so then that becomes a staple of Catholic theology, Catholic theological discussions about grace. So I think it is helpful to make some of these distinctions insofar as they're helping us to um, make sense of the data of revelation. Like when we're looking to Scripture and we're seeing, well, Scripture affirms that God works this way and that way, well, we say, okay, we can name that. And so we use these different terms to name the different redemptive ways in which God works. So I think in simple terms, when we have all these, cash out all these different kinds of grace, we're always talking about God's redemptive activity. Hmm. And then depending on kind of what he's up to, we can use different terms to name those different kinds of redemptive activities. But always, you know, that's what we're talking about. And he's not only active on the redemptive plane, on the supernatural plane, he's always operative as well on the creative natural plane. Right. Well, like, you know, because when we talk about, for example, God's action through the divine economy, we say that it's always, the, the Trinity is always acting. It's not just that the Holy Spirit did this apart from the Father and the Son, right? Mm-hmm. But we use, sometimes we appropriate things to ser- a person of the Trinity because it's kind of, there's like a fittingness to it, right? Yeah, exactly. We talked about we talk about the Father as the creator because there's sort of a fittingness to, you know, Father as generator, but obviously the Son and the Spirit also create, right? So when we're talking about grace, though, it's not merely like a linguistic appropriation, though. Like you can really say, this is God operating through sanctifying grace. This is God operating through nature. Yeah, okay, so that's that's right. You brought an appropriation, and so when we're talking about God's redemptive activity, that's the work of the whole Trinity. Mm-hmm. And so it's true that we sometimes ascribe certain act- actions in the temporal created economy to certain divine persons, like we might say the creator, the redeemer, the sanctifier. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is the redeemer. We appropriate the work of redemption to the Son, and that can be fitting to do as long as we bear in mind that we're not saying that the Son and the Son alone brings about, you know, grace working in our lives, right? Yeah. It's the whole Trinity because any created effect, you know, the, the, the actions by whereby we merit the kingdom and things like that, those are created effects of God. And so those are, the, um, those are you know, wrought by the Trinity of persons. Why do we appropriate, if it's the case that the whole Trinity does everything that happens in time, why do we ascribe certain things to one or another person? Isn't that then just misleading? And the answer is no, it's not misleading because we see the Bible does it. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the reason we do it is because there's a biblical uh, precedent for doing it. And well, why does the Bible do it? Well, not because it's misleading, but because it provides insight into the unique identity of each of the persons of the Trinity. So remember, the great achievement of God and his plan of revelation, it was hard enough to get people, fallen men, 
to recognize one true God. I mean, right. let's just, just look at the situation of Israel. <laughs> like it was, I mean, Israel among all nations, and you have a few outliers, Melchizedek and Balaam, but generally speaking, except for those outliers, it's, it's Israel that knows the one living God. And that's a huge, that's a huge deal. The burning bush, Exodus 3.14. Right. Okay, so that you get that far. And now all of a sudden, God has to try to convince you that he's three persons. <laughs> like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you do this? And so he, he does this progressively, very gently, like a good father through stages um, he, he, he slowly starts to open the door to the fact that he is a, a trinity. And so one of the ways he does this is through, right, appropriating certain things to certain, you know, persons. And we see the Bible uses language like that. It's not literally ascribing this work to this person, but it's a way that reveals the character of the three distinct persons so that we can relate to them as the unique individuals that they are of, of the Godhead. So um, the whole Trinity is involved in bringing about what happens by grace. Appropriation is still important. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting one part of what you said. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I, I'm trying to draw maybe an analogy where when we talk about the different types of grace, yeah. is that also just kind of an appropriation? Like ultimately it's just all God's action and we're sort of refracting it through these different lenses so that we can see you know, the colors, just as like light can be refracted and, and you see the different colors, but it's all just light. You know, it's all just God's actions, all just God's grace. Or is God really acting in these different modes? Um, yeah, that's that's good. So I think I think the, the phenomenon is different from appropriation, like okay. different from Trinitarian appropriation. And I think that it is helpful to see all of God's causal agency as essentially creative and character. That is to say, that God's proper effect is the existence of things, and that whether we're talking about his natural activity or his redemptive activity, right? God is always giving existence. So I think that's helpful. But we talk about God's activity by way of, to use a technical turn of phrase, by relational predication. That's just a fancy way of saying we don't know God in himself, so mm -hmm. we can't start in speaking as if we comprehend God and then we tell you how it is. We have to, we have to re always remember that when we think about God and talk about God, it's on the basis of what his created effects reflect of him. So the distinctions in his different types of activity are distinctions that are made on the basis of differences in his created effects. It's not as if God is in time and one day he's doing one thing and another day he's doing something else later. Um, it, it's that you know God is eternal and we don't comprehend what his inner life is like, but we see that the world plays out in time and that God is making to be everything that happens. And sometimes it's the, the grapes, you know, the grape bushes and the apple trees flowering at the right time. It's, mm -hmm. on, it's on the natural plane. But sometimes, right, he's working miracles. He's yeah. revealing through miracles. Sometimes he's bringing about a cure or a healing. Sometimes, you know, maybe it's not a miracle in the strict sense, but he's bringing about the conversion of a sinner. Um, and, and so he's working on the supernatural plane. God is always God, right? He's simple and he's eternal. He's always bringing about the existence of what is. Um, but there are differences in those created effects. The conversion yeah. of the sinner, um, Jesus walking on water, the miraculous cure of the cancer patient, mm -hmm. that's a different thing from, right, God, you know, operating the phases of the moon. Or, right, you okay. Know, you know, causing the generation of plants at the right season and things like that. Right, right. And I guess sometimes those things can, the they can go together where if you think about maybe somebody trying to conceive a child, maybe they have... You know, that's a natural thing that, that God is operating on. But sometimes that conception is kind of miraculous, you know, like Abraham and Sarah or Elizabeth and Zachariah, right? Yeah, and, and, and any, any example like that, there's always some divine intervention, right? Um, because there's a soul that can't be mm -hmm. totally accounted for um, just by the physical generation of the mother and 
father. So when we're talking about human generation, human conception, there's always a, a unique moment where God is involved, not just in the way that he's involved with any other animal species reproducing, but you've got the creation ex nihilo of a new soul that's being infused into the body. But um, yeah, I, I think that we've got to remember that it's not as if there's differences and distinctions in God. Rather, there's differences and distinctions in his created effects. Mm. And so we talk about God from his created effects, and so we make all these distinctions, but it's not as if those distinctions characterize right, God in himself. Okay. Okay. So I want to close by bringing us to the more practical lens. Um, but before we do that, are there any kind of loose ends that you think we should tie up about God's action, grace, free will? I mean, obviously, <laughs> this is could go on for That's centuries, as you mentioned, but, ask. you know, have we left any, like, terms undefined, do you think, or... Oh, there's so much more to say, but <laughs> I, I, think, I, th I think that, uh, I don't think there's any loose ends. Okay. There's probably, uh, because this is a mystery, right? There's, right. Always, there's always more to contemplate, and there's so much more that could be said, and giving me an open door on that topic is a very dangerous yeah. thing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop now. Okay, okay. So to kind of bring this back down to the practical, you know, I think a lot of people, especially young people, are very concerned with trying to discern God's will for their life. Mm -hmm. um, and for some people, that can bring about a certain anxiety because they're like, well, what if God wants me to do X, but I don't know that he wants me to do X, so then I do Y, and then I ruin my life by doing Y. Um, not even thinking about you know, X and Y is either them being sinful, but just choosing between two, two goods. So do you think that like God's will either in a broad sense or maybe in a particular moment is something that we have to kind of analytically try to figure out? Is it something where God is really sort of stepping back and giving us a freedom to choose what we want to do? Or is it kind of this mysterious thing of like, we're choosing, but God's willing us to choose. And so inevitably, we're always going to end up doing what he wants us to do if we're trying to do what he wants us to do. <laughs> Can you sort of shed some light on that that problem? Yeah, so I, I, I think that's a, a great question. You know, in fact, um, I'm so glad that, that you raised it, that this is the question that got me interested more than 20 years mm. ago in this topic. Oh, wow. Um, I, was, I was writing a project um, on vocation as an undergraduate, and as I was digging deeper into the theology of personal vocation, I uncovered this question about grace and free will. And I was really, you know, vexed by this, this question. And, and then only through graduate school started to discover, you know, more about it. Um, I think this is really where it, it, the rubber hits the road. And um, I think it's the both and. The simple version, the simple answer is it's, it's the both and. It's not, it's not um, that we have to be anxious, did I miss it? Did God? Right. Nor is it the case that God wants us to be free and he steps back and lets us. It, God doesn't have to step back for us to be free mm. because it's not a zero-sum game. That Either God's in charge and so we're less free or God is in charge of everything we do and so we're, we're less free. It's not, it's not that either our autonomy or God's freedom has to take a back seat. Um, because God is not on the same plane as creatures. God is transcendent. And so his agency isn't competitive with ours. I think mm -hmm. that's the beautiful, yeah. most essential truth to remember about this. And the practical application to that is that unlike the worries, this is the, the worry of modern atheism, is that if God exists, and they're logically consistent to this extent, right? if God exists, he must be totally in charge. Right. That, that much is true. But then if he's totally in charge, this is the error, then it must compromise my autonomy. And so if I want to affirm myself and my freedom and my plans and my flourishing, 
then God has to take a back seat, right? And and so it's this kind of response to the kinds of ideas of double predestination that came out of the, the Reformation, and and that's really misguided, right? So um, God wants gives us freedom. Uh, it's through cooperating with Him that we exercise our freedom well, and He wants us to to use this capacity that makes us to be in His image. He wants us to exercise it in a way that we become more configured to His image. And that's the task of finding, accepting, and fulfilling your personal vocation. And he has that plan for every individual. Whenever we're sinning, we're not fulfilling our vocation. Um, but it's never too late, right? Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So um, this is the moment. God acts in the present. He makes things to exist. The present is real. So it may be that in the past we failed to do what we could have done. But that doesn't mean that here and now we can't do what God wants us to do. And so our vocation is very much wrapped up in the present. Yeah. And so it's it's a mistake to think that there's this pre-scripted plan, and I either got on or I missed the bus. Right. Um, it's never it's never an I missed the bus. It's always <laughs> it's always in the present moment. God has a plan for me here and now, and am I responding to it? Am I responding to it as fully as I could? And if not, how do I become converted to it? So the Christian life is, is all about continual conversion. This is Trent's teaching on justification. It's not just the initial conversion, right, of the sinner from a state of, uh, for, uh, from, a, from a fallen state. It's not only the, the re-justification of somebody who's lapsed into mortal sin. It's a daily ongoing conversion of increasing justification, always trying to find out today, how can I most be conformed to the demands of charity? So I think that, that that is what this comes down to. I think it's a both and. God is at work, and he's calling us to be at work, to configure ourselves to his plan through exercising our freedom. Uh, we do that you know, by grace, by the, by the help of his grace. And that is, that's a way to summarize the entirety of what Christian life is about. Yeah. Um, so I think that, unfortunately, that's not as well understood even today as it, as it should be. But if that were better understood, I think our vocations crisis would go away. <laughs> and, and, and it wouldn't be. I mean, I think the vocations crisis is much larger than a crisis in priestly and religious vocations. Right. It's a, it's a crisis about understanding, you know, the implications of baptism. Hmm. And so um, I, 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 I love the question. This is, yeah. this is how I got going on this yeah. topic. That's very practical import. Oh, yeah. Well, you see it. I mean, you see it even in, I see it in like secular people where, you know, they, maybe they're they're dating somebody they've been dating for a year and they're like I don't know if this is the person I'm supposed to marry and the Christian might say I don't know if this is the person that God wants me to marry but either way there's like this like there's a real present reality there and and someone is like they they, they almost feel um, incapacitated from choosing yeah, right. for fear that the choice is the wrong yes. choice <laughs> and, and God wants you to choose your vocation that has to be understood the right yeah, way yeah. I mean he has a, he calls you to something and you right. have to configure yourself to it. But it's not so out there that it's kind of like a, a dance with, like, you know, the two part. It, it, it's it, your vocation is actualized through your choosing of it. And so that's very mysterious and it's right. very hard to grasp. But the good free choice is grace at work in you, right? It's God moving your will. That That's grace. That's actual grace. So, I mean, God wants you to not spend your life in a state of indecision. Mm -hmm. He wants you to choose and choose in grace and choose well and commit yourself. And so, you know, I have a vocation to marriage because I chose marriage. Now, I, I chose marriage because I was trying to listen to see, does God want me to be married? Does he want me to do something else? Right. And I'm trying to, you know, I am listening at a certain stage, right, for God's call. And, and, and this filters down, by the way. It's not just 
what is my major life commitment? Like, sure. It, it filters down into the everyday details of life. We should always be trying to conform our will to, to God's plan. But um, so there is that listening phase. But then, you know, once we get the clarity we can expect to get, we shouldn't wring our hands in indecision <laughs> and anxiety. Like God wants us to move forward. And right. so now is the acceptable time. Like we find our salvation in the present moment, exercising our freedom. And I think that's something that is especially existentially difficult, especially for young people. Yeah. Like it, it's one, one, the bigger problem is just not even being vocationally conscious. It's like, I have sure. my agenda. I'm going to go make a lot of money. I'm going to live my comfortable life and go on my vacation, whatever. But and instead, just getting people to think vocationally is step one. But once they're thinking vocationally, there's another pitfall. And that is this kind of anxious, hand-wringing state mm-hmm. of indecision yeah. where it's like, you know, I could do this and I could do that. They're both good. And so... Bingo. That's choice, right? Because right. If, if it was clear, exactly, if it was just an algorithm and you just had to find the <laughs> most efficient way, uh-huh. like that wouldn't really be a choice. It'd be a kind of practical calculus, but it wouldn't really be choosing. It's like you've already decided what you're going to do. You're just trying to find the fastest, easiest way to do it. Mm-hmm. When it's really a state of decision, it's like, gosh, I could A or I could B. And there's really different benefits to my Aing or my being. I could marry this person or I could commit myself to life as a physician or as a religious and those are incompatible, and they're all good, and mm-hmm. they promise different benefits for different people I could be serving. And the only thing that settles it is my determining my will. Like, no, it's not prescripted whether I go to med school or law school or marry this person or become a religious. Like, I have to settle my will on that. And, and it only happens through my settling my will. And that's the part that I think a lot of people struggle with. Yeah. That, that, you I know, think they want a big supernatural sign, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, and God does, you know, does reveal to us through signs, but often they're not what we're expecting. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's like, you know, in the Old Testament with Elijah, like it's the small whispering mm-hmm. voice. It's not the big, it's not the thunder and the lightning. Right. God speaks through the everyday circumstances of life, which are all providentially organized and arranged. Mm-hmm. And by attending to those often very mundane signals, we can make a very r- rational, very practical decision about, you know, where God is leading us. And then, again, it only happens through our stepping into it. So I think that's the key. We have to step into our vocation and not just wait at the threshold hmm. and say, God, you've got to, you know, <laughs> you've got to do it for me. Like he's, he's giving us signals. And, he, and sometimes it's that you could do this or you could do that. And so, I mean, which, is that a situation where there's a real, I guess there's a real freedom there? It's not just that absolutely. once you go through door number one, God's like, that was the door I wanted you yeah, to go yeah, through, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know? <laughs> no, th- this is the paradigmatic instance of free choice. I mean, it's precisely yeah. a free choice because there's different, you know, incommensurable alternatives, and the only thing that determines it is you choosing. Hmm. And and you have to step into that vocational role, and, and you settle your vocation. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't get married if I didn't think God was calling me in it to get married, but but the way I get to have a vocation to be married is by marrying. Right. You know, I, I don't, when I'm engaged, I mean, yeah. there's a sense in which I have a vocation to marriage, but there's a sense in which I don't. Right. You know, it's really important that engaged people don't have a vocation to marriage. Like some of them shouldn't get married, <laughs> you know, and like it's, re- it's, it's really important that seminarians yeah. don't have a vocation to priesthood. Like understand That's that the right way. Yeah. Like it's it, like they, they maybe like will have a vocation to the priesthood and, and that's why they're in seminary. Right. But it's it's important that you don't think you have a priestly vocation until you have it. I mean, hmm. your vocation is to be a seminarian yeah. so that you can become a priest. But some of those people that are called to be in seminary may be called out. And it can be really distressing and disturbing to think, gosh, I had a priestly vocation and now I don't. Right. It may be that God called you for a certain stage to receive that formation so that you could do something else for him. 
So, I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which you have a priestly vocation because that's what you're going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. Just like I have a vocation to marriage when I'm dating or when I'm right. engaged. But there's another sense in which at those antecedent phases, I don't have that vocation precisely because mm-hmm. I'm not ordained or I didn't commit. I didn't, I didn't give consent. And, and then it's by stepping into the vocation, by, by giving matrimonial consent or by being you know, ordained by the bishop, that now I really do have this vocation and the other thing is, now that I've stepped into that role, there's no doubt anymore. Like, I may emotionally have days where I sure. feel like <laughs> I did the wrong thing, right? Or, or, or you know, is this, I could, I could have an existential crisis yeah. when I'm 45. <laughs> but, 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 but I can always remember that, no, I stepped into this role. I'm committed. Yeah. And so that's one of the circumstances God speaks through. There is no question. This is my vocation. Mm. You know? I mean, until my spouse dies. or right, This is my vocation. If I'm ordained, I'm a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I may have bad days. Mm-hmm. I may, I may, you know, have friction with my parishioners or my bishop or my brother priest, but this is my vocation, and yeah. I'm certain of it because I stepped into that role and I'm committed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though it's, I mean, I think sometimes people can also like bring that down to the very minute decisions, you know, and almost like over. Say over discern, but it's like you know what milk is God calling me to buy from the grocery store? Yeah, not everything. Not everything's matter for discernment, (laughs) and and for that matter, not everything's matter for choice, right? I mean, there's all kinds of um, uh, technical decisions. Let's call them like perform some calculus. Like, what should I eat for breakfast? Well, I've got to get to work by eight thirty, and so you know, there's not really choosing going on. It's just kind of like, how do I get this done the most efficient way? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that doesn't call for discernment. We use the word discernment too broadly. I think. Mm. It's, it's a dangerous word. It's a great word. Yeah. But, but I mean, there's a lot of talk of discernment, and, and not everything is a matter of discernment. Right. Not, not everything is a matter of choice. Discernment is a very specific kind of a thing. It's, mm. it's when you've exhausted the rational alternatives for choosing. In other words, you're going through a deliberative process. You've considered all the rational options as far as you can, and that hasn't, that hasn't knocked out all the possibilities but one, right? So that from a rational basis, you could do A or B. And then you have to start attending to your feelings, your well-formed feelings. And that's discernment. Yeah. But, but the trouble is we use the language of discernment so often, <laughs> we think everything's discernment. And sometimes the mistake is we jump to discernment before we've gone through the rational deliberative mm, process. Right. And there's a whole lot of discernment that doesn't need to be done if we just, you know, engaged in a, a rational reflection. If we just reasoned about the possibilities, <laughs> just reasoning about the possibilities in light of, you know, a well-formed conscience and the sources of a well-formed conscience, right. that would that would provide us a lot of clarity on what we should do. And and yes, there are some situations where we truly do have to discern, but not every situation calls for discernment where, where we're really just you know, we've got to reason, you know, go through that rational deliberative process. Um, and then we can, you know, attend. Once, we, once we've identified the acceptable alternatives, we can listen to, right, emotion to be the, the deciding mm-hmm. factor. Right. But um, that's a very narrow technical sense of discernment that I think isn't often clarified when we use the language. And, yeah, th- there can be, um, I would want to say two things. I think vocation does encompass every detail of your life. Mm-hmm. I think every moment of your life is of eternal significance. And once you realize that, life is just, everything just pops out in 3D color, right? right? <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that we're supposed to agonize over every detail of our life and, and have to make decisions about, you know, which, you know, whether I use 2% or 1% milk. Right, right. Um, well, that, it's like, have you ever seen, like, uh, like heard of the butterfly effect? 
Mm-mm. Or there's, um, I think there's a movie, there's a German movie called Run, Lola, Run, where it's basically like you make one tiny decision, you know, you get on this bus instead of that bus, and then that changes the direction of your life forever, <laughs> where like, you know, if you get on this bus, then that's going to lead down the road, you know, somebody's going to have a heart attack on that bus, and you know, whatever, it's like, that I think could just like totally freak somebody out where they're like, there's so, there's like maybe a landmine down this yeah, way. Maybe so, but you know, you're not omniscient. You don't know yeah. the future. And, and, and there's, there might be more than one good route that, that, you know, what's in fact the case I think usually is, is like, yeah, actually you make that decision, you get on the bus and all that stuff does happen. Mm. You know, and, and actually you don't know beforehand what it's all going to be, but you can be sure that insofar as both buses go a long way before they hit the, the final terminus, yeah. there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens. Right. And it may be that the different routes are, are good. Right, there, there's there there are two different good routes. They're very different, but they're both good in different ways, and both routes probably have a lot of heart attacks and a lot of sufferings <laughs> and a lot of emergencies and breakdowns. Yeah, yeah. And you can't agonize over that. You, you, you know, mm. you're you can't see the future. You can't you know worry about it. And Jesus is really clear in the Gospels about this. Like, you know, uh, evil of the day is sufficient for the day, and yes. you know, God can provide. Look at the lilies of the field. Um, he takes care of them. So, so God who created out of nothing, can surely supply for our needs. And we can be sure that we have to pick up the cross every day. Jesus promises us the daily cross, but he also promises us that his grace is sufficient for us. And so um, we have to not get too anxious. We, we don't know the future. We shouldn't live as if we, we should know the future. Mm, or yeah. you know, um, God's not expecting us to make decisions with omniscient knowledge. Absolutely not. <laughs> he, he's asking us to make decisions on the basis of what we know. And, and he's trying to speak to us through, through the things that he makes present to us. And if we're looking for other signs than the ones he's given us, then we're going to miss. We're not going we're, we're to miss his voice. We're going to miss those opportunities. And so um, that's the key. There's an opportunity in every moment. Every present moment is an opportunity that has eternal significance. And I think that's not an anxiety-provoking thought, but that's, that's a very exciting thought. It is, yeah. There's an adventure out there, and exactly. you get to discover it. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end this. So thank you so much again for this conversation. Um, I think our listeners will find it fruitful. And once again, you can check out Dr. Mataba's book. Uh, I think it's on Amazon and maybe other obscure locations, but that's probably the most accessible one. <laughs> you can check it out of the library. Unfortunately, it's really expensive. But yeah, um, yeah. There's, there's some articles, too, that I have out on this that, that, are, that oh, okay. are more succinct that okay. people can also look to. Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, just pop his name into Google and... Uh, Once again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mary Rose. It was a pleasure. All right.